Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another new episode of the Open World Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm joined by my new friend, David Evans. He's a nomad currently calling in from Da Nang, Vietnam. He's a fellow Southern Californian who also lived in San Diego. We connected through a mutual friend lately. And he's running a laptop business from the beach in Vietnam, traveling the world pretty much full-time, a perpetual traveler wherever the whim takes him. He's lived in Alaska for a year. He's traveled extensively through Europe, Asia, India, and Central America. He started out as a freelancer, and now he's partnered with an expat. He's running a full-on agency called Handmade SEO, which you can visit at handmadeseo.co. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how he's making his lifestyle work, how he's been able to fund his travels and do it all remotely while living from the beach I think it's going to be a fun discussion, and I'm always, uh, I always feel a little bit of excitement welling up inside of me to talk to another Southern Californian who's making this work. David, thank you for joining us on the show. It's great to have you here. Great to be on. Thanks. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, you know, how you ended up here, where uh, you're currently like chilling in a hammock, I take it, or maybe you're in a chair. I don't know. I just kind of imagine. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I I've been thinking about buying a hammock for a really long time, but um, I haven't pulled the trigger yet, so I'm still in a chair. Yeah, I think they're rather cheap out there. I'm sure they they manufacture them all uh, in Vietnam, probably. Yeah, I mean the problem is not that they have them; it's just that everyone wants to sell them to me, and when that's the case, then I just feel really resistant, you know. So, <laughs> well, it's a buyer's you market. Know, when, <laughs> yeah. You can find like a perfect hammock. So, you can be really, uh, you know, critical about it. You can find like the exact hammock you want with the right threads, perfect size. You know, to fit, uh, I, I can body. be a hammock connoisseur too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm still in a chair, but I can tell you how I got here, um, kind of briefly. So. Basically, um, after college, I had the same question of what to do as most graduates do. Um, and my, my degree is in environmental studies. So I was looking for jobs on basically anything and everything in that field. Um, and I applied for an internship in Alaska because I thought it would be cool to go check out Alaska. Um, I'd lived in California my whole life, uh, never really spent much time in other parts of the country other than on the East Coast. So I figured, hey, you know, um, I'm, I like the outdoors. Um, I'm into the environment. Alaska seems like a cool place. So I applied for an internship there. And um, to my surprise, I actually got it. And uh, I was sleeping on my friend's couch uh, like a couple weeks after graduation, got a phone call like, hey, we want you to come up here for, um, I think it was originally supposed to be like six weeks or something. And, uh, we want you to be up here in, uh, by next week. So I was like, uh, could I have a few extra days? I don't have any like cold weather gear or anything like that. Um, they're like, okay. Like, you know, gave me three extra days or so. And then they booked my ticket for me and I pretty much scrambled to, to get some jackets and what I could, uh, mustered together from some of my friends and then headed up to Alaska. And when I, when I landed, uh, you know, I just kind of went like straight to work and was just kind of like blown away coming from Southern California at like the extreme nature up there and how everything was so wild and like lack of city. I was in the capital Juneau, which you can only get to by boat or plane and um, the population is like similar to how many students there were at my college, you know, so super small town. And, I kind of imagine uh, it like uh, my only exposure to those, you know, that part of the world is like uh, that show Northern Exposure that I used to watch as a kid. And 
during the intro sequence, there was always like a moose that would walk through the town. Was it was it really <laughs> like that? Like with the moose like strolling around and uh, you know like how like Australia has like uh, kangaroos and koalas and stuff. So I just imagine like Alaska's got like like mooses walking down. Mooses? I don't know if it's a moose. Moose. I don't know the plural form of that. But <laughs> like a moose like walking moose. through the, the town center. Is it anything like that at all? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of is. In in Juno, they don't have moose, but um, it's like that with bears. And Ooh, like bears. I would, the, the first time I saw a bear, actually, I thought it would be like out in the wilderness on a hike or something. But I was walking home from a bar at like 2 a.m. and I come around a corner and there's a bear it's like staring at me as he's like digging through some trash. And I was like, oh, man, it's like this giant black bear. I was like, OK, I'm going to take the long way home tonight but it, it really is like that like you know it's not bears, something you want to encounter when you're drunk <laughs> no no definitely not uh yeah and, and they would just be kind of like around town you just randomly see them or every once in a while they would like get into um a bus or like you know go into someone's house or something like that if you left the door open it's just kind of wild uh, i did see some mooses which was amazing because they're huge animals. Uh, but that was at a, a different part of Alaska when I was on a trip. I just Googled a plural form of moose. It was actually, so when I typed plural form of, it was the second result uh, in the auto suggest. It was actually meese. Oh, no, wait, sorry. Really? The, no, no, the, the use plural of moose is actually moose. Uh, yeah. So it says oh. other plurals are rare. Mooses, meese. Well, imagine that. Learn something new every day. So, so it's actually moose as uh, singular and plural. What was the first recommended result from Google when you typed in plural? <laughs> I think it was plural form of fish. Ah, which is also fish, right? The term fishes. Uh, yeah. All right. I'm getting really confused here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. So, um, what exactly were you doing during that uh, internship? So I was helping with research on salmon. I had a minor in, in geographic information systems, which is basically taking data um, and like organizing it into uh, ways that you can visualize it in a geographic form. So basically like creating maps and things like that. So I was out collecting data on salmon populations around the lake and then mapping that um, on a on a map, and then over time, just to see what their their spawning um, lifestyle—not lifestyle, but um, what their what their uh, what their spawning uh, tendencies were, I guess, over a period of time. So I was outdoors most of the time um, in in nature, which I I loved, and. You know, I had plenty of time to do recreational activities on the weekend to go hiking and, and fishing and things like that. So was it that experience that kind of ignited that travel bug for you? Because you mentioned that before that you never really went anywhere uh, outside of California, um, didn't really travel much. So that must have been like a really eye-opening experience for you, right, would you say? Yeah, I think it was. I think that, you know, I had traveled a few times outside of the States, but it was, it was pretty minor and and being away from home for that long and being in a place where the culture is just like if you want to explore go explore if the weather's nice then people take off work and they go out and do the things that they love to do and i think that 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 did kind of if it didn't plant the bug in me then it definitely secured it since i think it was already there a little bit before that and what did you do next after that internship was over? Did you plan on having so a the, career studying fish? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really liked it. Uh, I really liked the people I worked with. I liked the field. It was interesting. If it paid okay. Um, that, that internship was supposed to be two months, and I ended up staying there for a year and, uh, you know, just extending and then taking, like, a, a summer position with them. And then... It was through the, the government, um, and so once that that contract ended, they couldn't renew it, and I kind of had to go home. So I did that, and then I was kind of you know, not sure what I wanted to do. I still like the conservation stuff, um, and I spent a little bit of time just 
kind of like trying to find something similar and it was really tough i got a job in san diego uh, working with lobster and um it was with the department of fishing game and you know i didn't have nearly as good of an experience with that office as i did in alaska um and it was paying a lot less so it was kind of tough and then um i kind of randomly was at this uh fishing show and uh i met this guy from uh newport beach who was making an app about uh the restricted zones for fishing because california had like just recently implemented these uh, marine protection areas where you can't fish in and all the fishermen of course you know were up in arms and they didn't know where they were and when they were going to get a ticket for going in them or not and he made this app that would just show you basically where you are and where the fishing zones are and what the regulations are so if you cross into it you'd know and and you could know uh what the specific regulations are so i met him and i thought this idea is fantastic you know the state's really not doing that great of a job of providing enough information for fishermen to know what the regulations are. If you can kind of use a digital medium to, to translate that into layman terms and make it accessible to everyone, then that's a win-win. So I got pretty excited about it, and he actually needed someone who had this these GIS skills, which was what I was doing in Alaska and minor was in. So uh, I started working with him, and it was kind of like a, a tech startup. And um, you know, long story short, on that, the funding kind of ran dry, and it never really materialized. But it was my introduction into the tech space, and I really liked it, and saw that you know maybe if I was a little bit more on the tech side, then I could have some more freedom and probably more income than working as a conservation biologist. So that kind of got me thinking, like, okay, maybe I want to do something more in this area. And then um, I, after the funding ran out, I was kind of like at this position again where I was like, oh, great, like, I don't have a job. I'm kind of like sleeping on my friend's couch uh, and we'll just know, pretty much take anything. Uh, I know that scenario yeah. all too well. <laughs> a lot of young graduates think, uh, find themselves there, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you know, you get excited about a big idea and it kind of falls flat, and then you're like, "Oh, well, I didn't plan on this." Oh, all the time. Um, I, I I still have it. You know, I I still like have people come to me with ideas, and then they never follow through on them all the time. You know. It's, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how many ideas have died just because you know people just didn't follow through on them, or the funding ran out, or maybe they just weren't serious enough and it didn't seem practical. So many good ideas have died. I know I've, I've been a part of a few other ones, too. And it's sad to see them go down, but you realize what it really takes to make something good, something work. You have to not only be there at the right time, but you have to have the right people and, and the right execution. A lot has to come together to make something work. It can't just be such a good idea that it'll work no matter what, so, which is it's a tough lesson to learn, but I think it's very valuable. So what happened next? You were on the couch. Uh, you had no good prospects except for these jobs that you know paid like nothing, basically like ten dollars an hour, maybe more. <laughs> um, but then, how did you get like starting into you know freelance SEO and you know making this lifestyle? Like you, you've traveled quite a bit. You've been uh, around the world. How were you able to fund all that? You know, how'd you make this work? Yeah. So basically, I had a friend who um, recommended me to. Uh, someone who was looking for someone to help them with SEO. So basically, uh, this guy was working at an agency. He left to start his own thing, and he needed to hire someone. Basically, just do like the basics of SEO. So he hired me just on a recommendation with no prior experience. Basically, took me under his wing, taught me everything he knew, and then after a year of that, I felt confident enough to try to go out and, and get some of my own clients. So. I hopped on Upwork, uh, you know, took a couple of jobs at a really low pay to kind of get some experience under my belt on Upwork, and then I landed one client just kind of out of the blue. They they contacted me, and uh, they were going to pay me a thousand dollars a month to manage their SEO, and I was like, fantastic! Now I'm finally at a position where 
you know, I'm making some decent income and if I want, I could travel. So I have a friend who actually, uh, flies jetpacks for a living, which is very absurd, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's a reality for him. Basically he does shows flying, um, this jetpack, like not one of the water jetpacks, but over land, he's essentially straps this thing to his back and like flies. Uh, and he was like, Hey, I'm going to China. If you want to come with me, you can. Um, so I was like, yeah, definitely. But that didn't come through because the show he was supposed to do didn't materialize. And I kind of got excited about going to Asia and I was like, well, I can work for my computer. I have one client that's paying me a thousand dollars a month. Um, I'm just going to go anyways. So I bought a ticket to Japan uh, where I knew I had a place to stay with. Wait, wait a sec. So you had one client that was a thousand dollars a month, and that was your only income stream, right? Yeah, that was Ooh, it. That was risky, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was picking up a few other side jobs, but like nothing, nothing real um, steady though. But that client, I was like, well, I know SEO well enough. I think I'll do a good job, and hopefully they keep the budget. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I I went to. Japan and I um, stayed on Takeo's couch for a while, and that was kind of my my introduction into Takeo's um, mutual friend. Brought, yeah, yeah, our mutual friend Takeo. Yeah, I, I actually uh, I met him in Guam when I was there a couple years ago. Really great guy. So um, I mean, when I was in Japan. Um, I had a lot of time, so I put more effort into trying to find new clients, and I did. I picked up a couple other ones. So then, wait, hold on. My, tell me, tell me, what was Japan like? Where were you staying, and uh, what was that experience like? So yeah, Takeo is uh, teaching English out there, and he was actually living with his uh, aunt or great aunt who is Japanese. So. Um, they set up a little bed for me in Takeo's room and, um, basically I just kind of like live the, the Japanese life with him and his family for a month. They're, uh, a little bit outside of Tokyo and, um, yeah, essentially I was just kind of like working, enjoying the, the food there and on the weekends going with Takeo to explore different places. I Was had actually been shock? Um, it was, but not too bad because I had been there actually a few years before for like two weeks, uh, again with Takeo and a couple of other friends. So I kind of had had, had a taste of it before. Um, but living there and living with his family who didn't speak English, you know, it was a, a little bit of a shock. Yeah. Did you pick up any of the local uh, tongue while you were there? Did you speak Japanese? Not much. I knew that I wasn't going to be there for a long time, and I was really tempted to learn the language. Um, but I didn't. I picked up a few words, and that was about <laughs> it. Yeah. It's actually a really fun language, uh, and I, I didn't find it that difficult. One thing I found, because when I met Takeo, for example, um, I, we, we were working at a resort. It was like a summer job I took on, and the, the pay was really low. And the only way I could make extra cash was... Uh, to learn languages, you know, and then take these language tests. So, like, they gave me this uh, phrase sheet of, like, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, and I was, like, studying all of them and just, like, memorizing them because this job was quite dull. Like, we'd sit in this lifeguard chair, you know, for like, <laughs> hours, and I just had, like, these sheets, you know, and that, that's actually where I picked up my, my learning language, uh, sorry, language learning skills and my love of languages because there was a guy there, uh, Sean, who we actually had on this podcast. I actually interviewed him when I was in Guam, and uh, he created all these like sheets where they have like you know these useful uh, phrases and things like this. So, uh, following in his lead, I actually published like this uh, Thai language guide to Reddit, you know, where everything is like spelled phonetically, and I really enjoyed uh, learning that way because I think a lot of like language learning creates like a lot of barriers, you know, where you have to learn all the rules of the language first and. I really just want to speak like, you know, I want to be, speak and be understood. So I want to learn like the words, the phrases, you know, like, toire wa doko desu ka? You know, where is the toilet? Yeah. <laughs> things like this. Like, I have fun like, like communicating and, and not like learning all the formal rules and things like this. And um, so I, I had a really fun, you know, that, that's kind of like my story where um, I was learning Japanese and I picked it up quite fast because I wanted, I get like, 
25 cents extra per hour for every like language test I passed. So after like five days of you know studying Japanese, like I was like communicating with a Japanese guest, like Kochida e dozo hi hi, you know. <laughs> yeah. And things like this. Watashi ni tsute kite kudasai and things like this. Uh, so I had, that was a fun experience for me. Uh, that's how I kind of picked up some Japanese and same thing in Taiwan. Like uh, I, I learned like some Chinese pretty fast that way. Uh, and so like I, I really enjoy learning that way. I, I, and that's kind of where I picked up my, my love of languages was when I met Takeo in Guam. And that's the story behind that. <laughs> it's so much more fun when you can pick up a couple phrases and you get to see the other person recognize that you're speaking their language. Because if you don't, and you try to go maybe more traditional route by learning the alphabet first, there's just so much of a gap in between uh, the amount of time you study and the reward you get for being able to like communicate with someone else. So like learning a language, it makes sense to learn those phrases first so you can kind of like get into it and actually start talking to people. Exactly. And I think you need that motivation too, you know, like if you're able to speak with people, that's kind of like, it has its own rewards. You know, you feel good about learning, you feel good that you can actually talk to people from another country. And if you're getting paid, you know, offering, being offered money to study a language, and of course, you know, it was very motivating for me. Yeah. Uh, I found that a lot of the people that were working at that resort, you know, they didn't have like any ambitions outside of, well, of the job or any, you know, besides like traveling to Guam and like having a fun experience, like they spent all their money on like booze on Friday night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other thing too, that's really rewarding when you learn a language or even just a few phrases is I think that people in the, the country that you travel to really appreciate it. And and they kind of like up their level of respect for you. And then you guys kind of have a bond as opposed to like when you're not speaking the same language, it's just kind of really tough and you're like, it's awkward. And then you're kind of like, all right, I'll, I'll get my meal and get out instead of sitting there and having a drink with them and maybe getting a little bit deeper into their culture. So I'm sure you do the same everywhere I go. I try to learn at least a few terms, you know, thank you and hello and, and maybe like, cool that's always a good one like sagoi in japanese sagoi, you know? amazing yeah <laughs> people love it yeah they do definitely and there's like a set of common phrases that you can learn in pretty much any language and i always find this like i can learn those pretty quick like bahasa was really easy when i was in indonesia and you know i'm on these little vans and these little buses like traveling around sumatra and I have nothing to do anyways so i might as well just like pick up the languages and stuff and I picked up all the numbers in Bahasa like during this van ride from like this little town called Pematang Siantar, which is like in the middle of all these rice paddies, and I was going to this coastal town called Sabolga. And it was supposed to be a night bus, but I was really crammed into this little van in the next to the driver's seat, and there was like three of us in there, and we're driving on this windy road, like I'm rocking around all over the place, you know, so I couldn't sleep, so I, I had to find something else to do. And uh, picked up the language, you know, like pick up all the numbers within less than an hour had them all memorized, you know. Uh, I, I apologize for the background noise. So I'm actually uh, in Bangkok uh, staying at a massage studio uh, that I found on Airbnb, and uh, there's some a little bit of foot traffic in here. So I apologize for the, the noise. Um, so how many massages have you had since you've been staying there? <laughs> uh, I try to get at least one a week while I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good good routine. Yeah, it's it, so it's it was kind of unusual. I'm like in this little like village, and it's like uh, they have a spa right next to the rooms and stuff. And uh, but it's actually quite grown on me. You know, it's uh, I can do yoga here. They've got like an inversion table where I can uh, hang upside down from things like this. And <laughs> so what I was gonna say though, like there's there's like a set of common uh, phrases like do you speak English? You know, um, which in Thai is kun put pasangre daimai. And Japanese is like, ego wa hanase maska. And then, like, so asking people, like, how do you say this? How do you say that? So, in, how do you say this in Thai is, pasa tai ryakwa yang rai. Um, and then you can say these in different languages. And that's like a really easy way to learn. Like, the, my friend Sean said, uh, just try to learn like a new word every day, you know, or a new phrase every day. Like, if you don't know how to say something, just ask someone. And uh, don't be don't worry about like you know getting the tone wrong or making a mistake you know people will correct you it's not that big a deal but as long as you keep learning it's it's fun and it's really enjoyable I find yeah yeah definitely I, I've been in Vietnam for like six months now so I'm actually making a, a concerted effort to learn the language and well, it, Vietnamese it was, is tough it is it is very tough yeah but now 
I kind of feel like I got the tones down, which was like the biggest struggle. And I'm able to talk to people and understand some of what people say. And people really appreciate it and like it. And like now I'm able to talk to like the older generation who like normally would just bring out their kid and, and have their kid translate for them because all the, <laughs> the younger people know English, you know, but the older people, it's like, it's cool to be able to talk to them, even if it's just kind of like a few basic questions from my limited vocabulary. It's not like learning the phrases and the words in Vietnamese. It's the pronunciation that really uh, drives me up a wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Same with Korean. I find it a little bit challenging with like the tones and stuff. But I really find that their accent in Vietnam is really kind of endearing. Uh, their their pronunciation and it's so unique that I can I can identify a Vietnamese person immediately when I I hear that accent. Yeah, it is. And the, the one other thing about Vietnamese and their accents is that people who are from the south or the north have much different accents. And then there's all these other little territories that have like way different accents. So they're still speaking Vietnamese, but it would be like the difference from someone talking in Southern California and someone in like the deep South with a really heavy accent. Like even if they're speaking English, you can't understand them because of their, their accent. So, uh, it's, it's like really, it makes it even more difficult, you know, but I think that the major cities, like you can understand people, but if you go out to some of these small towns, which I was hoping I would be able to do, uh, you know, learn Vietnamese and then go explore kind of these like really off the, off the beaten path places but um, understanding some of those dialects might be you know out of the question for maybe a year or two <laughs> <laughs> well you've got plenty of time to stick with it and that's one thing i love about uh, travel and extended travel is that you put yourself in a new environment and you, you force yourself to like learn new skills i mean uh, a big part of it is motivation and i know that i would never have the motivation to to do a lot of the things that I've done if I wasn't um, in Argentina or in Japan or Guam or wherever it is, you know, being in this new situation, this new environment, like, it forces you to kind of, like, start life over again, you know, like, you're suddenly in a completely different context and you develop these new skills and it's, it, I find it very rewarding for me, like, it's one of the most rewarding things about travel along with the, the connections and relationships I make along the way and, of course, all the fun stories. So. So let's go back a moment. So you were in Japan. You were making about $1,000 a month doing SEO and uh, kind of couch surfing. Not enough to do much, especially in a country like Japan. You know, what were you doing as far as, like, work-related, you know, work-wise? And, you know, how did you manage to find new clients? Like, and especially with a, a, a trade like SEO, like, you're not able to really kind of guarantee any kind of results or anything like this. So um, for $1,000 a month, what exactly were you doing? And then how did you end up, you know, making it work? Like, how did you end up growing your business after that? Yeah, so for the first client, it was tough. I worked a lot more than what I charged hourly, really. But I thought that it was necessary to show those results and kind of get a case study under my belt. And, you know, people... I was getting my clients off of Upwork, which is where I found this first $1,000 client. A lot of people post SEO, but they really mean that they need someone to give them consulting for all digital marketing because they're maybe not familiar with the fact that SEO is just the organic side of search engines. It doesn't have to do with advertising and things like that. So um, I did a lot of SEO for my client, but then she would have questions about social media and, um, you know, paid ads and things like that. And I just helped her through all that. And I think that she found a lot of value in it because she's coming from, you know, she's an entrepreneur herself and um, she knows about business, but she doesn't really know anything about the online world. And to have someone like myself, who's was pretty experienced with it, uh, um, compared to her at that time was really valuable for her the, the one-eyed man is uh the one-eyed man is king in the land of the blind right <laughs> so yeah, you just need to know a little exactly. bit more than the, the person you're working with but what <laughs> what tips would you give uh based on your upwork experience you know because up, upwork is kind of uh, a rather controversial uh thing to to bring up because it, it evokes some pretty strong emotions in people like some people say it's 
possible to get some decent work on there. Some people say it's a waste of time. You know, people say that the, the clients take advantage of you. Upwork takes advantage of you. Like I saw this long medium post that someone was, uh, someone wrote about Upwork. What, uh, what tips would you give as far as like standing out and actually getting, you know, worthwhile jobs, contracts, and clients? Yeah, I can see why people would have differing opinions about Upwork. And my opinion changes pretty much on a weekly basis um, because they do take a pretty fair amount of what you make. Um, but, you know, what really worked for me was finding a way to cut through all of the other competition on there because there's a lot of people doing SEO. There's a lot of people doing social media and, and things like that on there. And how did you do that? Basically, um, one thing that I did was I made a job posting um, for the type of work that I wanted to get. So I became a client um, rather than a freelancer. And then I just saw what type of applications I was getting. And when I did that, I saw, like, okay, I'm getting a ton of of these uh, applications from people who aren't native English speakers. They're charging really low, but, like, you know, it doesn't look like they're really – um, like legitimate SEOs, just getting overwhelmed with those. And then I would get a few who were like really expensive, who's like uh, someone from the States who's like maybe charging $75 or more for like agency level service. So when I saw that, I thought, okay, I can come in in between what these agency level guys are charging and these these really cheap um services from people who are non-native English speakers and just be really good about communicating and um, see if that works. So I did it. I, I raised my price actually on Upwork. And then I just started paying a lot more detail to the applications I was I was writing and just being really clear about how I'm a native English speaker and I'm really good about communication and things like that and, and tried to get people on a phone call so they could talk to me and and basically hear that I was a really good communicator. And that worked really well for me. I started to pick up more clients easier after I did that, after I made that adjustment. Did you set a requirement for yourself? Like how many uh, pitches you were sending a day? Did you focus on uh, certain types of jobs? Did you like filter results so that there was like a certain budget requirement, things like this, to like get the right kind of clients? I did a, a little bit, but not too much. Um, honestly, I was, it was my, my first time living abroad for that long. And I just wanted to like work as little as possible and do as much as possible. <laughs> so I would kind of like take the job that fell into my lap because Upwork will email you like, Hey, this is a job opportunity that fits your profile or whatever. Um, I would kind of take those and then go from there. So I, I wasn't really doing a, a ton of uh, outreach at that time. But uh, one other big thing, too, I, I want to say before I forget about Upwork is I added a video to my profile. And a lot of people who actually reached out to me and said, hey, I looked at your profile and saw your video. Um, like, let's, let's get on a chat and talk about what you can do for me for SEO. So that was also very helpful. That's amazing. So how did you, once you got them on the call, uh, you know, run me through your process for consulting with them. How did you convert them? You know, because a lot of people will like uh, want to talk to you for an hour and get free advice, uh, but then they yeah. never end up working with you. <laughs> and I mean, I've, I've had plenty of those calls too. Uh, I mean, what I do is in the first call, I try to identify that they are fit for my services. So make sure that it is, in fact, SEO that they need. And take a look at their website and and see if it's something I would be interested in working on and see if I think I can help them and just try to get an understanding of their business. So in that first call, it's just kind of like getting to know the client and, and them having them meet me. And I don't really try to pitch them at that point. I usually tell them, Hey, I think that I can help you. This looks exciting. I like what you're doing. Let me put together a proposal for you. And then uh, we can go from there. And then I do that. I put together a pretty specific proposal for them. And then some clients want to make a few adjustments and other ones say, oh, you know what, this is, this is out of my budget range. And then others will just say, hey, yeah, that looks fantastic. Let's, let's move forward. So um, 
when you're working with uh, your clients, what are some of your uh, favorite, or I mean, just like in general, you know, what are some of your favorite uh, SEO tactics that you've learned? Would you mind sharing with us, like some some strategies here? Without giving away any huge secrets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's what, can you give us one secret at least? No, no, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so recently, I've moved more into uh, content strategies because before I was doing a lot of technical work. So I was just fixing parts of their site that were not really um, helping them in the eyes of Google. So maybe they were getting penalized for certain things um, or they weren't just quite utilizing some aspects of their site properly. So I was, I was doing a lot of those technical fixes and, and sometimes those can have really big effects right out of the gate. But since Google is getting so much better at understanding sites, that's becoming less and less valuable. And actually putting out new content is kind of where the, the future of SEO is, in my opinion. So I think that kind of having a balance between those two is probably the best thing you can do for SEO right now. And the one tip that I'll give is to find the, the content. If you can, find the content that your your client would have the opportunity to rank for. So you have to identify how much um, SEO juice, if you will, does your client have and what type of keywords can they rank for. Because if your client has a really new site and they're trying to rank for keywords that are really competitive, you're not going to see any results no matter what kind of content you write because their site just doesn't have good SEO equity. So you really need to find the match between how... Uh, how much value their site has in the eyes of Google, and the keywords that are are within that competition range. So, uh, how do you find like the best converting keywords? Uh, it's going to be different for every client, um, but what I like to do is it's really optimal if a client already is running AdWords, and you can go in, you can see which keywords are converting for them. And if they have their analytics set up properly, you can actually see how much money they've made off of specific keywords. So that's the easiest way. If, if you can do that, then you're in good shape right out the gate. Otherwise, you have to do a little bit of experimenting, and uh, the process can be a little bit longer. And if they're not doing uh, key, uh, excuse me, AdWords, what would you suggest? Would you look at competitor sites to, to kind of see what keywords they're using? Yeah, yeah. You can look at competitor sites to see what they're using. And um, a lot of the time you have to just kind of talk to the client and say like, hey, what are your best selling products? You have to get some other type of data. If they're selling products online, then sometimes I'll get um, those invoices from the client and just see like if there's a trend with which types of products are selling the most, things like that. Uh, see if I can link that back to any tangible content that they have on their site to say like, oh, hey, you know, this client created a guide to um, how to buy ceramic kilns and they're getting a lot of purchases on the kiln that they talked about specifically in this example. So looks like there's a correlation there. So you have to kind of dig in and get a little bit creative to find some of those opportunities sometimes. Once you uh, want to boost their site, you know what, um, what's your favorite strategy for building links? Do you rely on any kind of tools or automation leverage to make your job easier? I think the best way right now is to try to do it you know, through social and outreach and building a community. And that's the most sustainable way to do it and the most white hat way to do it. But I'm also doing a technique where if I publish a new article – I search the keyword that we're targeting for that article, and then a lot of relevant other content comes up. So sticking with the example of like how to buy a kiln, I would, if my client, I recommend to my client that they write uh, a blog post about or a guide to how to write a kiln or how to uh, buy a kiln. Then I'll search how to buy a kiln on Google, and I'll see that there's a couple of other guides out there too. Then I'll look at those sites and I'll see who's linking to those and then reach out to all the people that are linking to those similar, those similar guides and say, hey, we just released uh, a new guide that's an updated version of this one. 
you know, the one that you're linking to is actually missing X, Y, and Z. We've covered that here. I think your readers would appreciate if, if you updated the link. And if you can kind of do that somewhat automated um, with pulling all the data that you need and everything like that, then it, it can be a decent outreach strategy. You said that was a kiln, right? K-I-L-N? Yeah, kiln for like firing ceramics. And that's like a, a, an oven or something, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like okay. a really, really hot oven. I wouldn't recommend cooking food in those. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what you did was actually like you know manually building links like using a tool like uh, BuzzStream or something like that, I imagine. And that was like the kind of SEO that I really wanted to get away from was uh, having to actually pitch people to like give me links and stuff. Like, I, I don't know, I, I just got like kind of bored with that kind of stuff. Uh, the white hat SEO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't do much black hat SEO. I find it interesting. Well, I don't um, know about if everything has to be black hat, but I think there's definitely like a way to to do like a lot of gray hat stuff, just that you know saves my time, so I can actually enjoy my life a little more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think so too. And I think backlink building, if you're going to do it the more traditional way, it has a pretty low success rate because you know people just don't open emails from strangers that often, really, um, or let alone like. It's hard to convince someone to say, "Hey, go on your site, you know, update your link, you know, link it to mine." Um, and you know, realistically, people are really busy, so it's a numbers game, which is why I, if I can automate a lot of it, you know, then send out those emails, and it's kind of like a no-brainer to do it. And if you get one, it's really worth it. If not, then it's not that big of a deal. But definitely, yeah, and it's definitely time-consuming. And, and like you said earlier, like you alluded to this earlier, when you were on Upwork, for example, uh, you had to find, you had to come up with a strategy to cut through all that competition. And same with link building. Like, there's a lot of people doing the same thing, saying, uh, you know, like I posted a post last week, and then like an hour after I posted, it, I had someone requesting a link, you know, because I use I use one keyword. It was like Cissus quadrangularis. Uh, yeah. supplement and they're like oh you might want to link to this study about sisters quadrangularis and I'm like no I just delete the email <laughs> it, was, it was a nice email and I appreciated it but it's like uh, I don't really feel like linking to your site for free sorry and, yeah and so um, so so yeah like that I had to do a little bit of that stuff you know because like um, uh, I was doing some SEO as well I had this agency and I had clients you know back in the US and um, they were already ranking for these keywords, but I felt like I should be doing some kind of work. And I, I remember using BuzzStream and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, honestly, like, I, I don't know. I just didn't enjoy it that much, personally. Uh, yeah. For me, like, I, so, so what I find I enjoy is, like, you know, like you found, like, a way to cut through the competition on Upwork. Uh, I like to find those hacks, you know, things that help me to work smarter, not harder. I call them, like, magic whistles because in Super Mario Brothers, you know, in the game, there was, like, this magic whistle that let you, like, skip, like, five, six different worlds. And then you could face Bowser at the end and rescue the <laughs> So I like, I like to find those magic whistles, those you know, leverage points that I can use. And um, you know, with SEO, like, I know there's a lot of stuff you can do manually. I, there's one tool I'm looking at right now that I started using. It's called BuzzBundle. Have you heard of BuzzBundle? No. Uh, I think it's a really awesome SEO tool. Um, they have a free version of it. And basically, like, it can scrape the whole web for any kind of keyword. And it looks for, like... Um, Video sites, social media sites, uh, forums. You can. It looks for Quora, and it puts it all in one place in one dashboard. So, um, you know, so you can click through on these, and you can like, you know, reply to people, answer questions, and you can link to your site, things like this. And so, I've been doing that for, you know, trying to do it like at least twenty or thirty minutes a day. But what I was thinking of doing was actually just like hiring a, an assistant and just having them do this like full time. So, um, you know, you could search for words like, like take my book, for example, like hack sleep. Uh, I, they could put in a bunch of keywords like that, uh, like, you know, sleep better, improve sleep, insomnia, things like this. And uh, suddenly go around like answering questions that people are asking you on the web and then link back to the book. And, and what's, what's one thing that's really cool is that you can use like different personas and such. So you can use like aliases and pen names and say, you know, oh, one book that really helped me was uh, hack sleep by Danny Flood. And you can link to that. And uh, that's one tool that I, I like, that I, I see yeah. a lot of promise. Yeah, I think that that's a good strategy. I'm, a lot of people see success with Quora, too, because they answer very specific questions, and oftentimes those will be that, that answer that's in Google when you search a specific question. I think that 
at the end of the day, really, like you need to be the authority of the topic that you're talking about, um, you know, because there are hacks with SEO and things like that. But Google's only going to get better, and what they're trying to do is connect the person who's asking the question with the person who has the right answer. So, as far as sustainability mm-hmm. goes, and in any kind of digital marketing, I really think that you need to just be the person who has the right answer. Like know who your audience is, know what they're asking and be the right person to answer that for them. And you can't lose if you do that. It's much more difficult and time consuming, but it's a lot more sustainable. Well, you just gave me a great idea there. Um, if I were to hand this off to someone, you know, like a VA to manage for me, what I would probably do is maybe for a week or two, answer all my own questions, and I would save all of those questions people have, and then save all of the answers in a document, or Google, you know, Google document something like this, maybe a Google Sheet, and then I could hand it all off to someone, and then, you know, they can spend an afternoon reading it, and then they would know how to answer all those same questions as they pop up, because people keep asking the same questions. That's the way to go. That's smart. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for that. I just took a note of that idea. So, um, what, uh, what other, let's talk a little bit more about online marketing. What mistakes do you think people make, you know, what your clients are making? Uh, I think the biggest mistake is just not knowing what their focus is or their niche and not knowing who their audience is. Because I go to some, a lot of my clients' sites for the first time, and what I like to do is tell them what I think their site's about. And usually there's a pretty big gap between what their business is about and what I thought their business was about on their site. And that's not strictly SEO, but from a marketing perspective, if someone's coming to your site and they're not understanding what value you're going to add to their life, then that's a really big problem because they're probably going to leave and find some other site that actually speaks to the problem they're trying to solve. I think that's the the biggest issue. Yeah, that's a great point. Like someone goes to a website and it's like, what is this website all about? And it's not immediately apparent they're going to bounce. Yeah, exactly. How can this website help me? And people just want to like talk about themselves and, you know, have a huge picture of their face and, you know, think that that's their way of advertising online, like putting themselves out there online. But it's like, who are you trying to to talk to? How are you going to get their attention? How are you going to get their interest? How are you going to get them to convert to some form of action? You know, people don't really consider these kind of things. And it's really difficult, too, especially if you're an expert in a field. You know, you're kind of like in the forest. So it's really difficult for you to pull yourself out, put yourself in the shoes of someone who's going to use your service and then write to that. So it's really valuable to have someone else uh, come in and just kind of be honest with you and give you their opinion about what your site's about. That's uh, a great point as well. Like, like they are too close to the subject and they don't really know what someone from the outside, you know, what how they're perceived from the outside. Exactly. Yeah. And, and from an SEO standpoint, a lot of people, maybe if they know the audience that they're targeting, they don't know what they're searching. So that's really valuable for people to like, do the keyword research and then know the types of terms that your audience uses to find your services. That's huge. I mean, those two things can be really valuable, like right out of the gates for, for an SEO client. And then uh, one other thing that that is underutilized, I think, is user testing. You can sign up for I think you can pay maybe 15 or $30 for um, feedback from professionals about your website and have them answer specific questions about your website on usertesting.com. So if you could just get three to five people within your target market to go to your website and take a course of actions that, that you want them to do and then give you feedback on that, that can be huge. That's a really good tip there. I haven't heard that one actually. So usertesting.com. And you said yeah. you can pay like $15 per user, right? Yeah, I'm not sure what their current rate is, but I think it's between $15 and $30 for a test. And basically what you get back is very specific feedback about the questions you have about the usability of your site and things like that. Would there be a way to like do that for free? Like if you you know tap your network, what kind of questions might you ask them like uh, as far as uh, getting feedback on the experience of your website? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a way you can do it for free, especially if you have an audience and you have a user base. Uh, you know, you also have to weigh 
like is it going to be worth my time to try to convince people to do it rather than just like you know cough up 100 bucks and get get the three case studies that i need um and then the questions that you ask it's going to be specific to your your site obviously but if you're trying to sell something typically you'd say you know come to my homepage. um first of all tell me what you think the site's about and then the next step would be okay, find this product. And then you can watch someone try to find a specific product that you want to sell. And a lot of times you'll see like it's not clear. They go get lost. Maybe it takes them a little bit of time. Uh, so finding, getting them to the place where you want them to be on the site from the homepage is usually pretty eye-opening. And then um, if you have them go through the checkout process, then that can be really helpful too. Because a lot of people will say, oh, you know, I went to buy it and then I noticed that it added tax at the end, so the price isn't the same. Like now, I'm not sure about that. You should include the tax in the price that you advertise on the site. And then it's like, oh, you know, this page is in HTTPS, so uh, you know, I don't really trust that that this is actually going to be secure. I'm supposed to put my credit card information in here. So all these little things that you maybe would have overlooked as an entrepreneur building a business online, you can find through that. So it, it can provide a lot of value really quickly. Yeah, you actually just gave me a really great idea there because I have people that write to me all the time, you know, say they read like a blog post or they left a comment on my a blog post or something and I would say listen to the podcast and, and what I should probably do is just ask everyone, you know, what was your opinion about the site? You know, do you have any feedback for me? And simply by I think asking that question, I invite people to open up because I think a lot of people have like opinions but they won't like they won't share them unless they're prompted to do so. Yeah, I mean, feedback is invaluable, and you have to be, sometimes you have to, like, kind of really go out and ask people and be proactive to get it, um, because, you know, people don't want to just email you back, hey, Danny, your site sucks, man, like, <laughs> yeah, I should change this, but if you say, okay, I'm improving it, I'm open to feedback, please let me know what you think uh, specifically about this, and I think people will be helpful. Yeah, I mean, they'll give you tips like, oh, I love the site, but it, I found that it loaded really slow on my tablet, or, um, you know, maybe it was, like, dif difficult to navigate because uh, it was really crunched on my phone or something like that, because, I mean, I, normally I look at my site through my website, uh, through my, my MacBook, you know, because that's how I work. Uh, so, like, thing, things like that that you don't even notice that you could you could pick up on, and simply by asking for feedback, I think, would be would be really valuable. So... Uh, I'm going to make a note to start doing that from now on, you know, because normally, like, if someone says, oh, I love your podcast, I would say, like, can you write a review? Uh, but I could also say, you know, what was your, your feedback about the website? Uh, any tips for me? I, I see, like, that could really, over time, would really help you out and uh, help you progress by leaps and bounds, I think. Definitely, yeah. I mean, if you can just make it a little bit better every time, then you're making good progress. One thing I would say... Two, just to take it one step further, is maybe ask specific questions if you can. I think sometimes if you leave it too open-ended, people are like, oh, you know, they're not sure what to write. Yeah, so this is some great tips here. So, um, you know, we talked a lot, a lot about uh, some ways we can improve as far as, uh, you know, making our sites better and more marketable. Uh, let's, let's go back to you and your SEO business now. Are you still finding clients through Upwork? I'm still finding clients through Upwork, yeah. Uh, okay. Upwork and referrals are, are where I get most of my clients from. Interesting. So you've gone to the point where you started out you had making $1,000 a month in Japan. Uh, how many clients do you have now? Now I have uh, six clients. Okay. So and, and still charging about the same rates or so? Or have you had different Yeah, packages? about the same. Maybe a little bit more. Uh, awesome. I'm, I'm trying to productize it a little bit which has been which has its growing pains but um i've uh, since i've been living in vietnam and not traveling much lately it's been a good opportunity to kind of figure these things out uh like iron out some of the details and get better at what i do um i've hired a few people and i'm starting to automate some things so um one challenge that I had before when I was traveling around was, you know, I'm in a new city. 
I would just kind of like get my work done, make the client happy and then run off and, and go see things and explore and, and everything like that. So it was really awesome. what I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that a lot of digital nomads have that, you know, like you're ambitious, you're young and you see a lot of opportunity and you want to capitalize on that. But at the same time, you're thinking, hey, you know, I'm only going to be in Seoul for a week. I want to go see the sites, you know. So it's really easy to put off those other things. Um, I found it to be great, though, it, like this this practice because it's really forced me to be more efficient with my time and really kind of ignore a lot of the things that I could be doing but could do without. And also, um, you know, taking advantage of, like, my power hour or that magic hour when I'm like the most focused and getting everything done, like, you know, around 10 a.m. or so, getting all the, swallowing the frog, getting all the most important things done. And then by, you know, after lunchtime, I can go to the beach or something. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Uh, I think if you have a focus like that, you're like, I'm going to be in this coffee shop for four hours until lunchtime. So I need to get the most important stuff done. And then you just crank it out and then when you're done you can kind of like put it down and go do something fun i think that's very valuable so tell me a little bit about your life in vietnam I mean, that's a great place to uh, bootstrap you're in da nang i remember i did a motorcycle trip across vietnam and i stopped in da nang and i actually quite liked it i spent a week there i think which is more than i spent in most places i was at this place called a uh, hoa's place and i was basically living like steps from the beach for five dollars a night it was pretty cool I think it was yeah. like breakfast included, too. <laughs> that is the beauty of Vietnam. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the best things is that the living expenses are so low that it's easy to experiment. I don't have to stress over, you know, taking on more clients. I can kind of, like, figure out how to run the business um, with the clients that I have now and make it scalable and then scale it. So. That's one of the main reasons why I'm living here. And did you? Danae, uh, how did you find a like a condo and stuff? Or I assume you're staying in like a condo, right? Yeah. I at first I was um, in a hostel, and then I think I got an Airbnb for a few weeks just to like have a, a place where I could just kind of like call home. And then I went online and I found a couple real estate agents and like contacted them, and then. A few of them kind of took me around, showed me what the options were, and um, you know, after I saw like ten or fifteen places, I kind of knew what I wanted and where I wanted to stay. And you know, you kind of just sign a a lease. Like I signed a three month lease right there. You know, like the next day, and moved in, and that was that. And it's pretty easy. So you signed like a six month lease or three months? I, as it were? I signed a three month because you know. I, as a nomad, I was a little bit hesitant to <laughs> kind of dedicate the next six months of my life. Uh, I wanted to feel it out. And, um, you know, they're fine with three months. So cool. I've, I've been there for six months, so I signed one three-month, and then I actually moved to a different location and signed another three-month there. And so you can expect to pay, what, like around $250 a month or so or $300 a month around there? Yeah, it depends on what you want. Uh, you know, you could definitely get a little studio for like yeah, two or three hundred bucks. Um, I'm paying four hundred right now, and I have a one bedroom that's pretty much brand new. Um, it's like two blocks from the beach, so Perfect. it's very reasonable. Yeah. And then you can you can buy a motorbike out there for like two hundred dollars too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got a I got a motorbike from some a couple who was doing what you did i think they're going from the north to the south of vietnam on their bikes <laughs> and they like they had to get rid of one of their bikes because they were like i don't know they their trip got cut short so they came through da nang you know i picked it up and it's been running ever since so it's it was in <laughs> da nang where i uh, i was at hoa's place and then there was this french guy i met there at hoa's place and he's like oh that's so awesome you're traveling across uh, vietnam on a motorcycle and then he's like i want to join you and then he went out and bought his own motorbike and and then we were traveling together you know on the road for a while and then somewhere like up uh, north of vietnam we got separated on like some long day on the road <laughs> uh but we were actually there where he just like he's like oh that sounds cool i want to buy one and join me and we ended up traveling to hanoi together <laughs> how is that trip i mean is it a, 
how frequently did you stop and was it dangerous on the roads? What was your experience? It was a, that, that particular day was a little dangerous because we traveled across the old like DMZ between north and south and uh, I'm just Googling it now. So we went to this place that was called Kisan Combat Base and it's empty these days but it was really gorgeous up there. It's like up in the mountains, one of the most beautiful places I've been and you can still see some people in the countryside, like, you know, foraging for, like, scrap from, like, shrapnel and stuff. Wow. But the scenery is gorgeous. And we reached this one place, like, after Kisan, where uh, we were driving around near Laos, near the border. And there was, like, no people within, like, 100 kilometers or something. And we see waterfalls, like, cascading near the roadside, like, every 200 meters or so. And uh, it wasn't dangerous, but we were out in the road for so long during that day because we, we took such a long trip that uh, as night fell, we, we would get, like, herds of cows and stuff, you know, mobbing the road. And so <laughs> we'd go around a corner, and it would be really tough, like, trying to dodge all of these cows. Fortunately, like, nothing happened. Uh, <laughs> but we finally got back to the highway, and then, like, I just got, I went ahead of him a little bit, and then I waited for him, and I just didn't see him coming. And so I, I went to this town, I think it was like called Vin or something, uh, something like that. Yeah, and then I was like waiting to hear from him. And it wasn't, I, you know, I was like, I, I stayed there for a couple of nights, and then it wasn't until like three or four days later, he finally messages me on Facebook, and he's like, hi, I'm up by, uh, near Hanoi now. And like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like two wow. days ahead of me now. <laughs> uh, so it was a fun experience, like a, definitely something I'll remember my whole life. Yeah, I think it's popular. That trip is popular for a reason. It's It's got to be fantastic. The ultimate adventure, yeah. And you can find, like, these uh, these posters in, you know, Saigon and Hanoi of all these people at these hostels, like, trying to sell a motorcycle. And I remember I had to sell mine in Hanoi after that. And I was, like, going on like, couch surfing, like, Craigslist and all these sites, like, trying to sell it, not having much luck. And then I just went down, like, I was like yeah, I just come down to the hostels and I just walk around the backpacker area and... Uh, some Canadian guy's like, yeah, there was a guy looking for a motorcycle like 20 minutes ago. And I ended up going out and finding him. This guy from Amsterdam was like, yeah, I'll take it. Let me go to the ATM. And like, you know, 10 minutes later, the deal was done. Yeah. And we all just got like totally drunk that night afterwards. <laughs> so I got a beautiful photo of like the four of us, uh, you know, take it like flashing our, our tits for the camera, you know, like taking the shirts <laughs> off and stuff. And we were like pretty sloshed at that point. And uh, I actually learned a valuable lesson about marketing that day because uh, I was trying to attract the wrong market, you know, like I was trying to sell to like expats and locals and stuff when all I really had to do was just kind of go down to the backpacker street and they're not looking like to say that like, oh, it was made in China or, oh, uh, you know, there's a problem with the tire uh, like these expats would do, like busting my balls and trying to undercut me and stuff it's like oh okay cool i'll buy this motorcycle for three weeks and drive it to saigon and uh, the deal was done <laughs> yeah it's like a little micro economy of trading those bikes so some of those honda <laughs> winds have been up and down vietnam probably like 50 times or more <laughs> yeah but whenever i had like an issue or something i could take it to some little small shop and they'd repair it for like two dollars or something so it was perfect <laughs> Yeah, I know those those repair shops are everywhere too, so they're pretty reliable. Well, excellent. This call is running a bit long, but um, you know, I wanted to say thank you, you know, for sharing about your your travels with us, about your business, your life in Vietnam. It it all sounds really exciting. Where do you see things going from here? What are your goals? Um, my goal is to grow my business and have enough income to be able to travel to those more expensive countries. I wished I'd had more money to stay in longer when I was traveling. So uh, hopefully that's that's not too far away for me and I can go back to Japan and, and you know, even live in somewhere like San Diego where the price of living is pretty expensive <laughs> compared to out here in Vietnam. Right. Well, someone was asking me about, like, uh, cost of living comparative to, like, Thailand last night. And I think a part of it is just kind of like how well you know a country as well or how well you know a place. Um, you know, like some places, like even Japan, like I, I know, you know, like I've been to Japan three times and the third time, like I was, the second time I spent like $45 on like a bowl of udon soup or something and some sake because I was like in Maranochi, you know, the center of Tokyo. 
near the palace. And, <laughs> and then the, by the time I went again after that, like, I was able to find a lot of, like, really cool places, you know, like, college areas, like, in Shibuya and stuff that I can eat lunch for, like, five, six dollars. And, you know, spend a lot less. So I think that's a big part of it. And, and how you travel, too, I think, is, is really important as well. One of my favorite values when I travel is to find, like, hostels that have no one else in them, you know? So uh-huh. you can get, like, a, a dorm bed for, like, uh, four or five days, and it's basically a private room that you get for, like, a third of the cost. Yes, I love that dollars. strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and couch surfing is an option, too, but you don't have any privacy with couch surfing. You don't really know what to expect as well. Yeah, yeah. If you're up for an adventure and you don't really have any expectations, then that's fine. Yeah, but, but if, if you have, have to work, like, work. You, need, like, you need the internet, you need privacy. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you so much for this fun chat, David. Um, you know, Takeo recommended you very highly, and I'm really glad that we connected. Yeah, me too. It's been nice talking to you. I hope that we can link up here. You know, we're, we're not too far, we're like an hour flight from each other. Just got to make it happen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll try to keep tabs on your travels, and if we cross paths, then that would be cool. I think I'll be in Da Nang for a while, so let me know if you ever come out this way. Definitely. I have to add it to my list now uh, to go back there, places to go back to. So if somebody wants to you know, get more information from you, I know that you have a, a blog. You do a little bit of blogging on uh, Handmade SEO. Or you know, if they want to like uh, reach out to you, if they have uh, an idea for a project, how would they go about doing that um yeah people can uh reach me through the website um if they want to they can email me directly it's dave at handmade seo.co that's probably the best way to get a hold of me excellent and any other thought that you wanted to leave us with before we uh, sign off here um to Just like the enjoy the travels, there, folks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any advice to uh, aspiring nomads, anyone that was in your shoes maybe a few years ago? Yeah, do it. Uh, take the plunge. I think that um, do what you want to do. You'll find a way to make it work. I mean, if you run out of money, then you'll find a way to make money. That's the biggest incentive. So I'd say just do it. You know, Don't wait too long. I love it. Thank you so much, David. Thanks.